0: I said at the beginning that uh, I was going to address certain objections uh, to cognitivism about reasons, uh, for which I would offer a qualified defense, uh, qualified in that I thought these objections didn't hold, but on the other hand, uh, you should be careful what you wish for, because I didn't think that the resulting view was without without problems, and so now we're here for the the, the, uh, sad denouement. In my first lecture, I listed seven questions about reasons that seemed to require answers. These were first their relational character. Reasons are reasons for an agent. And how is this relational character to be understood? Second, ground of truth. In virtue of what are claims about reasons true when they are true? Does the idea that claims about reasons are true or false, independent of our opinions about them, and that truths about reasons are irreducibly normative, have, an unaccept- have unacceptable metaphysical implications? As a part of that, perhaps, supervenience. How are facts about reasons related to natural facts? They're not entailed by natural facts, but they can vary when natural facts vary and cannot vary when natural facts do not. This may seem puzzling. Knowledge. If claims about reasons are claims about irreducibly normative truths, how can we come to know truths of this kind? Practical significance. Judgments about reasons play a different role than other beliefs, such as beliefs about the natural world, in practical reasoning, and in the explanation of action. How can they play this distinctive role if they are just another kind of belief? Strength. Reasons have varying strengths. The reason to turn the wheel of a car in order to avoid hitting a pedestrian is a stronger reason than the reason to go on listening to enjoyable music on the radio. What is this strength? And how do we determine the strength of different reasons? Finally, perhaps a special case of of the previous one, optionality. Some reasons seem to be optional, merely reasons that it makes sense to act on if one chooses, whereas other reasons are normatively conclusive, reasons it does not make sense not to act on. How should this difference in reasons be understood? In the intervening lectures, I've offered responses to five of these questions. I'll begin the final lecture by reviewing these answers and then say something about the remaining two. I've taken what may seem to be a short way with the first question about relational character by asserting that the basic element of normative judgments is indeed itself a relation. The relation I've written RPCA, which holds when a consideration P is a reason for an agent in circumstances C to do action A. This thesis seems to me to have considerable explanatory value. The relational character of reasons is most likely to seem puzzling, I think, if we focus on reasons themselves, that is to say the states of affairs that stand in this relation to agents and their actions. If we take the basic normative claims to be apparently non-relational claims that these things are reasons, or apparently non-relational claims, for example, that certain things are good or right, The question then naturally arises, what these normative facts have to do with particular agents? This possible puzzlement lies behind Chris Korsgaard's caricature when she says that according to a realist view, we notice certain reasons, quote, as it were wafting by, unquote. The idea that the basic normative element is a relation allays this puzzlement. It does not seem to me ad hoc uh, to assert that The basic normative judgment has this relational character, but quite natural once one thinks of it, and it has the advantage of explaining other features of normative truths. In particular, it provides the basis for a plausible interpretation of the relation between facts and values, or so I argued, and explains what seems to me to be the more puzzling aspect of the phenomenon of supervenience, namely the fact that many normative truths co-vary with non-normative truths even though they are not entailed by them. More exactly, those normative facts that vary at all co-vary with non-normative facts, even though they are not entailed by them. This relation holds, I said, in virtue of the truth of what I call pure normative claims, which assign normative significance to non-normative facts. These pure claims themselves, however, do not vary. I also took what may have seemed to have been a short way with the question of motivation, or as I would prefer to call it, the question of normative significance. It is, I said, part of being a rational agent that one's beliefs about what one has reason to do generally influence one's subsequent behavior and can explain that behavior. Building this connection between belief and action into the concept of a rational agent may seem question-begging, but it should not seem so. All of the non-cognitivist views that are alternatives to mine explain the relation between normative judgment and action by appealing to some psychological ideal type, an agent who normally responds to the imperatives he or she issues, an agent who normally carries out the plans he or she has made, and so on. The difference between these views lies only in the particular psychological ideal type that is appealed to, There seems to me no reason to prefer these alternatives to the one I propose, given that, as I argued in my second and fourth lectures, uh, there uh, are are no metaphysical or epistemological objections to taking normative judgments to be capable of truth uh, and possible objects of belief and knowledge. The fact that a cognitivist account provides a more natural and attractive interpretation of interpersonal argument about reasons is moreover a ground for preferring it. In the discussion after my third lecture, Rafe Wedgwood and John Broom offered an objection along the following lines, or so I interpreted them. A normative belief that one has conclusive reason to act in a certain way does not always lead to that action. This indicates that in those cases in which action does ensure the explanation of the action, sorry, does ensue, sorry, this indicates that in those cases in which action does ensue, the explanation of the action involves the presence of something more, in addition to this belief, an additional element of motivation. I can see the appeal of this argument, but it seems to me to get things backwards. A rational agent is so constituted that his or her normative beliefs generally lead to action in accordance with those beliefs. But we are not perfectly rational. Things can go wrong, and often do. We can be distracted, depressed, too focused on certain pleasures, even though we can see that they are not uh, pleasures that provide good reasons. Akratic behavior is explained in these ways as a malfunction of the apparatus, as a result of which what would normally be sufficient to produce action fails to do so. What goes wrong might be described as a lack of motivation. But what this means is just a failure of the normal functioning of the agent's rational capacities, not the absence of some needed element in addition uh, to uh, normally functioning capacities and normative belief. I I stated the question of the ground of truth in the following way. In virtue of what are claims about reasons true when they are true? Does the idea that claims about reasons are true or false independent of our opinions about them and that truths about reasons are irreducibly normative have unacceptable metaphysical implications? I argued in lecture two that the idea that there are such irreducibly normative truths about practical reasons does not have unacceptable metaphysical implications. In my view, there are normative facts only in the minimal sense in which these are, in Gibbard's words, merely the reflection of true normative beliefs. More strongly, My view of the relation between normative and non-normative facts implies that no non-normative facts could be the ground of truth for normative truths. Non-normative facts can be things in virtue of which normative claims are true only by being facts which are reasons and not by grounding in any sense the fact that these things are reasons. The fact that this metal is sharp is a reason for me not to press my hand against it. But the fact that this is a reason has no non-normative ground, and no normative ground either, except possibly further normative facts about my reasons for wanting my hand not to be cut. This leaves two further questions about the truth of normative claims. The first is what I called in Lecture 4 the question of determinateness. Do claims about practical reasons all have determinate truth values? The second is, in what sense these truth values are independent of us. I've said repeatedly in earlier lectures that the only way we have for discovering normative facts is by carefully considering what seem to us to be normative truths through the kind of process that Rawls called the method of reflective equilibrium. I'll say more about that in this lecture. Insofar as this method is just one of seeking coherence in our own attitudes, it may be doubted that it can yield justified belief about matters that are independent of us. It will be helpful in answering this question and the question of determinism to say a bit more about the nature and status of this process. As Rawls describes this method, it proceeds as follows. One begins by identifying a set of what he called considered judgments about the subject. These are the judgments one takes to be clearly correct and then that seem to us to be clearly correct under conditions that are conducive to making good judgments of the relevant kind, such as when one is fully informed about the matter in question, thinking carefully and clearly, not subject to conflicts of interest or other factors likely to distort one's view. These judgments may be of any level of generality, In the case at hand, judgments about what is or is not a reason in specific cases, for example, or more general claims about what kinds of things can be reasons or what it is for something to be a reason. The second stage of the process is to try to, as as Rawls described it, is to try to formulate principles that would, as he put it, account for these judgments. This meant, he said... Principles such that had one simply been trying to apply them rather than to decide what seemed to one to be the case, one would have been led to the same set of judgments. Since one's first attempt to come up with such principles is unlikely to be successful, or one's second or third or nth, whatever you want to say, there is another stage at which one decides how to respond to the divergence between these principles and, and one's considered judgments. Should one modify the judgments that the principles fail to account for, or modify the principles in hope of achieving a better fit. It's likely that some accommodation of both of these kinds may be required. One is then to continue in this way, working back and forth between principles and judgments until one reaches a set of principles and a set of judgments between which there is no conflict, the state of so-called reflective equilibrium. It should be emphasized that this is not a state we are currently in or likely to reach, except perhaps in very local areas, it's rather an ideal which we struggle to attain. So much for Rawls's description. Now some comments. This method is open to two interpretations which need to be distinguished. On what might be called the descriptive interpretation, its aim is to come up with an accurate description of our views about the subject in question. Rawls sometimes describes the method in, in ways that invite this, uh, this understanding as a process of, sometimes he says, giving an account of our moral sense, or as he put it, our, our sense of justice, a portrait. So understood, the process would not appear to yield conclusions about anything independent of us. It is, after all, about our psychology. In Rawls' earliest statement of the method, the word our seems to be understood collectively rather than individually. The considered judgments with which we begin are not those of a particular individual, but rather the considered judgments of what he called competent judges. If the process is understood in this way, then modifying the considered judgments with which it began in order to better fit the principles one has devised would, make, would seem like fudging the data. At least we couldn't do this without the consent of all the other judges, one would think. This is particularly so if the judgments in question, as I say, are not just those of the person carrying out the process, uh, but also those of other competent judges. But it seems like fudging the data even in the one-person case. On the alternative interpretation, which is the one I have in mind, the method of reflective equilibrium is a way of making up one's mind what to think about a subject. This makes the process, at least initially, a first-person enterprise and casts the matter of revising one's considered judgments in a very different light, When one finds that there is a conflict between a considered judgment and a principle that seems to one to have some support, one has to decide what it is that one really believes. This is not simply a matter of weighing the brute intuitive plausibility of the principle against the brute intuitive plausibility of the judgment with which it conflicts. Discovering that a considered judgment conflicts with a plausible principle can tell us something new about both of them. As we saw in the case of normative desire theory in my my last lecture, counterexamples can undermine the plausibility of a principle not simply by conflicting with it, but by calling our attention to weaknesses in the thinking that led us to adopt it in the first place. The reverse can also happen. When we see what general principles a judgment conflicts with and see what, uh, what a general principle supporting that judgment would have to be like, this can undermine the initial plausibility of the judgment itself. As Rawls wrote in a striking paragraph, quote, "...moral philosophy is Socratic. We may want to change our present considered judgments once their regulative principles are brought to light. And we may, we may want to do this even though these principles are a perfect fit. A knowledge of these principles may suggest further reflections that lead us to revise our judgments." I should say, speaking of revising one's judgments, I should say that that's a quote from the first edition of A Theory of Justice, which was deleted from the revised um, edition. Uh, uh, a, puzzling, uh, a puzzling fact. Um, and I, I, I once asked Rawls uh, why he took this particular paragraph out. It seemed to me apposite uh, and to make a very good point. And he said, I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway... My guess is that it was very close to some references to the, to the analogy with, with linguistic uh, judgments and, and giving an account of our sense of grammaticality which had attracted a lot of criticism and that it just decided to contract that, uh, th- that section but you know, that 's a wild guess anyway, I stand by it even though even though it didn 't. Like the conclusions of this process, this first person version of reflective equilibrium, are beliefs about some subject matter independent of us that have withstood critical examination. They're not just conclusions about our psychology. If we've carried out the process as far as we can, or as far as seems necessary in order to answer some particular question, it might be said that the conclusions we've derived at we've arrived at are supported by a combination of their intrinsic plausibility and their coherence with our other beliefs. This is true in a way, but also subject to misinterpretation, insofar as it suggests that these two components, plausibility on the one hand, coherence on the other, are independent of one another. Intrinsic plausibility is not a constant through the process. As I've mentioned, many of the judgments uh, with, with which we conclude will be different from those with which we began. Some of the latter, the ones we began with, may have been, if not rejected, then at least reinterpreted and understood in a different way at the end of the process. Whether this is so or not, the plausibility of the judgments with which we conclude, that is to say our confidence in them, will be in large part a function of their having survived this very process. Although the end of the process might ideally be a set of coherent beliefs, that is, beliefs that are consistent and mutually supporting, Coherence is not a good description of what we are seeking and carrying it out. Coherence would be too easily achieved. What we are doing is not simply seeking coherence, but rather testing and evaluating all of our beliefs in the light of what else? In the light of those other beliefs that seem uh, most plausible. The method of reflective equilibrium, as I've described it, is a way of deciding what to believe about a subject. It's not an account of truth it would be a mistake to say that the truth about practical reasons is given by those judgments about reasons that we would accept in reflective equilibrium. The judgments one would accept at the end of a process of seeking reflective equilibrium will depend on the judgments one has considered as possibilities, the correctness of one's decisions about which of them to regard initially as considered judgments, and the correctness of the decisions one makes at each stage about how and whether to revise or reject judgments and or principles that account for them or fail to do so. Its dependence on these substantive questions would make such an account of the truth about a subject matter trivial. That is, the dependence on these substantive questions of the idea that the truth about the subject matter is the thing that survives some particular exercise of reflective equilibrium. The reflective equilibrium is a way of coming up with an account of a subject Sorry, the method of reflective equilibrium is a way of, of, of coming up with an account of, of a subject matter. It's not itself such an account. For the same reason... The method of reflective equilibrium is not a constructivist procedure which constitutes the subject at hand. Even if reflective equilibrium is the method we should use to decide what sets there are or what reasons we have, this procedure itself is not an account of how the domain of sets or of reasons is constructed because carrying out that process requires countless decisions about this very question at every step along the way. Why should we think about a subject in the way that the method of reflective equilibrium prescribes? In particular, it may seem natural to say we should look for general principles that account for our considered judgments, but on reflection, why should we do that? Before answering this question, I need to address an ambiguity, in the, another ambiguity in the understanding of the method. When Rawls first introduced the method of reflective equilibrium, He described it as beginning with considered judgments about what is right and wrong in particular cases. In later versions, he expanded the starting points to include judgments of any level of generality, the judgments of any level of generality in which we have most confidence. This would include, in addition to judgments, let's say, about particular cases of right and wrong, or justice or injustice, also general maxims, such as that promises ought to be kept, slavery is always wrong, and judgments about the kind of considerations that are relevant to, or irrelevant to, questions of rightness and justice. Rawls even says that in order to reach what he called, later called wide reflective equilibrium, we should, here's a quote, consider other plausible conceptions, other, this is my intervention, other than the ones we've arrived at, and assess their supporting grounds. again. taking this process to the limit, one seeks the conception or plurality of conceptions that would survive rational consideration of all feasible conceptions and all reasonable arguments for them. Once the process is described in such inclusive terms, it may truly seem that there is no alternative to it as a way of deciding what to think. But at the same time, and for the same reason, It may seem that there is nothing to the process, nothing to the method. The the method, so-called, is just to think carefully about a question, taking into account and assessing everything that seems potentially relevant to it as best we can. This, I'd say, deflationary interpretation seems to me largely correct. Uh, I was so distracted by that depressing thought that I lost my place. (laughs) This deflationary description seems to me largely correct. The distinctive content of the method is negative. Its distinctive content lies in its refusal to give privileged status either to particular judgments, as in the first version of the method, or, as some others might claim, to any class of more general truths, axioms, or a priori principles. The point of the method is that everything is up for grabs. Everything is to be assessed in the light of its plausibility uh, under, under reflection. This brings us back to the question I raised before launching off on this digression. Why seek more general principles to account for our particular judgments, or perhaps to systematize those judgments of varying degrees of generality with which we began? I will mention two possible aims in doing so, large-scale aim and small-scale aims. The large-scale aim would be to come up with an overall characterization of the subject, such as that provided by a description like the iterative conception of set, or by a set of axioms, or in the case of justice, perhaps by Rawls's two principles. One might seek such an overall account in order to have a basis for deciding particular questions by, as it were, deducing them from the axioms or deriving them from the difference principle. And, but we also might want to uh, answer general questions about the subject as well as particular, getting particular answers. And one question is what I call the question of determinateness, that we might seek a general account, uh, general principles characterizing the whole domain in order to settle uh, the idea that judgments about that domain have determinate uh, truth values. In the case of practical reasoning, there are determinate answers to questions about practical reasons if there are correct substantive principles characterizing the domain of reasons from which these answers follow. That's at least a sufficient condition. So, for example, if normative desire theory were correct, then questions about reasons for action would have determinate truth values whether or not we had the information about desires and what promotes them that would be required to figure out what these truth values are. As I've said, however, it seems to me that the method of reflective equilibrium does not support normative desire theory. Determinateness might be established in some other wholesale manner by establishing some other overall account of reasons, an account of similar generality to the normative desire conception. I haven't ruled this out, although I don't know, I've said repeatedly, I don't know what such a theory would be. I don't see any good candidates. I doubt that there is such an account, because it seems to me that reasons for action are too diverse to be accounted for by any single substantive criterion. In the absence of any such general account of reasons, determinateness, that is the existence of definite truth values, can only be established piecemeal by determining the truth values of low-level generalizations about reasons in particular contexts. Here our thinking generally employs a small-scale version of the method of reflective equilibrium. But this method is employed as much to clarify what the reasons asserted in our initial considered judgments are as to verify that they are reasons. Recall the example I used in earlier lectures. The fact that a piece of metal is sharp is a reason for a person not to press his or her hand against it. It's one of our considered judgments that this is so in many circumstances. But the generalization I just stated, taken to the limit, would be false because it's also a considered judgment that someone can have good reason to try to cut his hand. So the conditions C in our original statement have to be stated in such a way as to rule these cases out. Searching for the relevant description of the conditions under which the sharpness of the metal is a reason not to press one's hand against it is a a matter of trying to find a low-level principle that accounts for our considered judgments about when we have reason not to press our hand against it. But this could just as well be described as a process of trying to figure out what these implicitly general considered judgments really are as a process of trying to find overarching principles that account for them. Most of our day-to-day thinking about reasons for action takes place within a framework of accepted judgments of this kind, for example, that we have general, generally have reason not to cut our hand. When it seems to us that, as David Wiggins puts it, toward a sensible subjectivism, there is nothing to think but that P is a reason. I've actually changed his words a little bit. We may be saying, as perhaps we are in the case of pain, that the judgment that P is a reason seems to us on reflection so obvious that we can't imagine it's being mistaken. Or we may be recognizing that P's being a reason clearly follows from some more general precepts about reasons that have this status for us. These more general precepts are commonly put not simply as judgments about reasons, but as views about what's good, what's right and wrong, what's virtuous or vicious, or in terms of other thick ethical concepts. If I'm correct in believing that the normative content of these more complicated notions is to be understood ultimately in terms of the basic normative idea of a reason, focusing on isolated claims... of of the form RPCA that I've mentioned so many times, may may make practical thinking appear less determinate than it really is, because when we focus on these isolated claims about something being a reason, we obscure the normative context in which these concepts apply. My focus on such judgments, I think, is still appropriate, because by focusing on them, we can clarify, as I said, the relation between normative and non-normative facts. More to the point, however, judgments made with thick concepts, or concepts such as wrongness, goodness, and so on, seem to have determinate truth values because when we use them, we are holding fixed, broader judgments about reasons that they embody and presuppose. These judgments, these judgments about the application of thick ethical concepts, for example, have empirical content, as Tim Williamson pointed out in discussion last week. But I would say they have this content because this content is specified by, by the normative formulas within, the content, within, within those concepts, which are presupposed when we use them, but which are open to the same generally epistemological worries as, as the particular judgments about reasons that I've been focusing on. To put the same point the other way, our confidence in these judgments isn't simply that they have descriptive content, uh, but depends on the normative judgments that make that particular descriptive content relevant in the circumstances. And these presupposed or embodied uh, normative judgments uh, rest ultimately on the same kind of reflective equilibrium process that I'm now discussing, or so I claim. Our facts about practical reasons, as I've described them, Independent of us, well, independence can mean a number of different things which need to be distinguished. Facts about reasons are relational facts, about the significance of certain natural facts for rational agents. They are thus not facts out there, floating by, having nothing to do with us. But this is not, I take it, the kind of dependence that might seem problematic. It's sometimes said that facts about reasons are dependent on us because there would be no reasons in a world without rational agents. Certainly, there would be no point in talking about reasons uh, in, in, in the absence of rational agents for whom they are reasons. But it could still be true of certain facts that if there were agents in the relevant circumstances, then these facts would be reasons for them if they existed. If we can say sensibly that it would be a bad thing for the world to be a certain way, even if there were no rational agents in it, this is just a claim about how we have reason to feel about the possibility of such a world or perhaps uh, about what we have reason to do, insofar as we might affect whether there would be such a world uh, or not. The kind of independence of us that normative facts are supposed to have, and do have in my view, comes to at least this. They are facts that we individually could be mistaken about. Could we all collectively be mistaken about certain reasons as well? Well, it seems that we might all fail to notice some relevant feature of a situation of a certain kind and all die before learning any better. This seems possible. If this could happen through descriptive error or lack of information, why couldn't it happen through normative error as well? Reasons do depend on us in one further way, however. If our reflective judgments about reasons showed no tendency to converge over time on a stable set of opinions, if our corrections were likely to be reversed the next time we thought about the matter and to oscillate back and forth, then thinking about reasons would be pointless. Similarly, speaking interpersonally, if different agents did not have any tendency whatsoever to converge in their well-informed reflective judgments about reasons for action, then this would make the practice of offering each other reasons and arguing about what reasons we have pointless, and would cast doubt on our assumption that there are truths about reasons. This doesn't mean, however, that our thinking certain things are reasons makes them so. Convergence of opinion on a normative claim doesn't make it true, although it can be a reason to think it true. Let me turn now to the question of strength. I've so far been discussing the normative relation uh, R, understood as a minimal claim that P is a reason for... Well page 15, has escaped the for an agent in circumstances C to do A. This leaves entirely open whether P is a conclusive reason that should settle the matter of whether to do A, or merely a consideration that it makes sense to take into account in considering whether to do A, weighing it against other factors. Only the latter is claimed, although the former is left open. So understood R is the relation we use in classifying various factors as the, as into those that should play a role in deciding whether to do A and those that are irrelevant. In order to express the idea of one consideration being a stronger reason than another, we need a normative relation that takes account of the normative interaction between different considerations. The relation RPCA, as I've interpreted it, already expresses some interaction of this kind, because the middle term, the condition C in the relation, isn't an agent but a set of circumstances in which an agent is placed. If, for example, Q is a factor that undercuts P as a reason, then this will be reflected in the fact that that P is a reason for C, uh, sort of, P is a reason for someone in C to do A, can be true, uh, but. P is a reason for someone in C, situation C prime to be false. If C prime includes the truth of Q, which undercuts um, which which undercuts uh, uh, P, uh, but 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 C does not. But outweighing the relation that occurs between one consideration, which is a reason to do A, and another consideration, which is a stronger reason not to do so, is a different matter from undercutting different matter from it being the case that when Q is present, P simply ceases to be a reason at all. Even if Q is a stronger reason not to do A, then P is a reason to do A, uh, and and even if the, the conditions I'm in include Q, it can still be true that P is a reason to do A, even in those circumstances. It's just not a strong enough reason. In such a case, P remains a reason, just not good enough. So let's shift to the stronger reason of P being a sufficient reason. I call this the relation R+. plus. P is a sufficient reason for an agent in certain circumstances C to do A. Using this stronger relation, we can express the relation of strength. If P is a reason to do A and Q is a reason not to do A, then Q's being a stronger reason than P just comes to the following. In a situation in which P and Q are both true, P is a reason to do A, but Q is a sufficient reason to do not A, and P is not a sufficient reason, uh, not a sufficient reason to do A. So we can, we can express strength relationally. Using the same relation of being a conclusive reason, we can also express the idea of an optional reason and the relation, the difference between optional and non optional reasons. A reason P is an optional reason to do A. If there are considerations Q such that P is a sufficient reason uh, to do uh, A when Q is present, um, and uh, Q uh, is, is a sufficient reason uh, to do not A even when P is present. So even even when both of them are present, each of them is a sufficient reason uh, to follow the opposing uh, course of action. So it's optional which you do. Either way makes either way makes sense. Neither of them excludes the other. Note that cases in which reasons are optional are not cases of indeterminacy of the kind I was talking about earlier. They're not cases in which claims about reasons lack definite truth values. Rather, they are cases in which a particular configuration of such truth values obtains. This shows, I think, how we can express ideas of relative strength and optionality. There remains the question of the kind of thinking through which we arrive at conclusions as to which reasons are stronger than others, which reasons are optional, and which reasons are not optional. Desire theories and hedonistic theories offer extremely general accounts of reasons and their strength. They also suggest a methodology for assessing reasons and their strengths that is atomistic and bottom-up. To determine the strength of a reason on either account, we focus on it, so to speak, in particular on the desire or the amount of pleasure that supports that reason. If, after rejecting hedonistic and desire theories, we retain this methodological picture that strength is something we determine by focusing, as it were, on the, on the reason itself, um, we may seem to be maintaining that reasons have some ineffable normative property of strength which we can access just by focusing our mind on them in the right way. This kind of case-by-case intuition of the strength of individual reasons may seem implausible. This problem arises from hypostasizing reasons in an implausible way. Reasons are not a special kind of abstract object that we are aware of. As I've said, the basic normative element is the relation R and its its relatives such as R+. And claims made made using these relations all have a kind of generality. That P is a reason for to do A for any agent in circumstances, C. Judgments about relative strength, intuitions of relative strength, if you want to put it that way, are judgments about the truth of general claims of this kind, relational truths, specifically of the kind, the kind of truths I outlined above using these relations of, of R and R+. In this respect, my view, my relational view, which I think in this this is another case that seems to me to show the superiority or the advantages of looking at reasons relationally, in this respect, my view resembles Kant's. Accepting that P is a conclusive reason to do A in circumstances C is what Kant would have called adopting a maxim. That is to say, the policy of taking P to be sufficient reason for doing A in circumstances C. Kant seems to me to be correct in holding that maxims we have a gremlin in the works here. I don't Doesn't like my taking Kant in vain, I guess. We have a in the in the works here. Um, Kant seems to me to be correct in holding that maxims, at least maxims stated in the normative form in which I'm interpreting, I'm interpreting them, are the fundamental elements in practical reasoning. Whether maxims are also the basic objects of moral appraisal is a separate question. As I'm interpreting them in this normative fashion, perhaps not Kant's, Maxims express judgments about the relative strength of reasons in particular circumstances. Perhaps Kant understood them differently, merely as policies or laws given to oneself. But where I clearly differ from Kant is on the question of how we should decide which maxims to adopt, or as I would put it, which instances of R plus or R are correct. According to Kant, as I read him, a person correctly decides which maxims to adopt on the basis of his or her inclinations under the constraints imposed by the categorical imperative in its various forms. I don't accept Kant's arguments for the categorical imperative as a fundamental principle of practical reasoning. And I don't want to say that the strength uh, strength of reasons is in general determined by the strength of the agent's desires. Even proponents of desire theories find this idea, this way of explaining strength, implausible. So something more needs to be said. I do not have a general answer to this question, but I will mention a few patterns of thought leading to conclusions about strength because I need to refer back to them in in what follows. This seems to be an area where where more work needs to be done, which I haven't done, so here I'm just calling attention to things people might think about. Consider first what I'll call dominance cases. If continued life will offer pleasures of intellectual companionship uh, uh, and, uh, and, and reading for many days as well as other things worth wanting, then it doesn't make sense to give up life for the sake of one day of these pleasures, or reading, or intellectual companionship. That is to say, the fact that doing A will preserve my life is a stronger reason than the fact that doing the the alternative A prime would bring me uh, these goods uh, for for a day, or a very few days. Uh, But no life beyond that. This tie-breaking argument presupposes that the reasons for the two incompatible claims balance out. Uh, That is, the the short, the few days of life, of pleasure that I might get by doing A as opposed to the same amount of pleasure I would get by doing A prime, which would lead to a longer life. So so that the additional additional reason provided by the further enjoyment of the same pleasures in, 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 in later life would settle the matter. This judgment this tie-breaking judgment, already involves a comparative element. I've tried to minimize this element by, taking in case, by taking, speaking of cases in which the initial balanced reason providing the considerations in the two cases is as close to being exactly the same as possible, but the comparative element remains nonetheless. What might be called quantitative cases are a special type of dominance cases. In such cases, what gives one a reason to do A is the presence of some feature that comes in amounts. So one has a stronger reason to do what will yield more of this feature than one has to do what will yield less. That is to say, one has an additional reason to do this, provided by the additional amount of the crucial feature that it will yield. In my initial dominance uh, example, the the, the tie-breaking reasons didn't have to be the same as the reasons that were balanced out in the two cases. Quantitative cases come closest to fitting with the bottom-up explanation offered by hedonistic theories. Indeed, one reason sometimes given for finding hedonism appealing is just the idea that it would provide a basis of this kind for rational decision. The interesting question, I think, is how to explain cases of relative strength that don't fit the dominance or the quantitative models. One kind of such reason is strictly instrumental. That is, it has to do with the causal consequences of following a policy of a certain kind. If one has reason to achieve an end that can only be achieved by following a certain policy. And if one will not follow that policy, if one gives considerations of type A, priority over considerations of type B, then one has reason to adopt a policy that rules out this, to to, to, to adopt a maxim that holds uh, considerations of type B to trump uh, considerations of, of, of type A in situations of the relevant kind. Policies regarding exercise programs and dieting are familiar examples. Right? If I, I may think it's... But, The case for adopting such policies already contains a comparative element, however. One has sufficient reason to adopt a policy of skipping dessert in order to lose weight only if one has reason to prefer a life in which one is thinner but has missed out on on many sweets to a life in which one is heavier but has had these momentary enjoyments. This is naturally seen as reflecting the fact that one has stronger reason to be thinner uh, than to have these enjoyments. I'll mention one other class of cases just to distinguish it from this last one. Particular relationships with others may require holding certain judgments of strength. Being a friend requires thinking that the friend's interests give rise to stronger reasons than one's own convenience, and in most cases stronger reasons than the comparable interests of strangers. Being related to others by common commitment to a cause or value also requires taking that consideration the, promoting the cause to give stronger reasons than many other things in life do the point of these examples is just to indicate how our views about the relative strength about relative strength reflect a larger set of normative attitudes rather than being isolated reactions to relative to relative quantities of some normative or non-normative property. We decide to enter into this relation. We value this relation with somebody. Being in that relation involves adopting certain, uh, certain R, R judgments about the, about the applicability of reasons in certain circumstances, so we have, reason, we have reason to adopt those maxims, as Kant would say. I've suggested that we assess our beliefs about reasons for action, and decide whether they are correct by engaging in a process of seeking reflective equilibrium among our normative beliefs. But different people applying this method conscientiously can reach different conclusions. In cases in which there is such disagreement, how can the kind of correctness that this process can deliver really matter? Isn't some further kind of correctness required? To answer this question, it will help to consider a particular matter about which people might disagree. Here's one. Does the fact that a certain form of behavior is required by the traditions of my society give me a reason to engage in it? Suppose I think at the outset that it doesn't. Traditions can be bad, and when they're not bad, I think at the outset the reasons we have to do what they require depend simply on the merits of living in that way, not on the fact that there's a tradition of doing so. Now, how do I decide whether this is the case? or whether there is some further tradition-based reason that I'm missing. Well, I consider various examples in which it seems that there might be some further reason, and I consider what the reason in question might be and how it might be explained. The fact that a certain form of behavior is traditional in society may mean that many, perhaps most people in that society, would be disapproving, perhaps shocked at my failure to follow it. If I have reason not to shock or disappoint, then this is a reason, whether the society is my own reason or whether the society is my society or not. More positively, if I have a reason to want to be understood by most people in a society as expressing a certain attitude, such as love or respect for a recently deceased person, in Stuart Hampshire's example, and expressing sadness that this person has died, then I have reason to do whatever is the traditional expression of those attitudes in that society. But the suggestion I began with The fact that something is traditional in my society can be a reason to do it seems to aim at something more fundamental than these purely instrumental and simply communicative reasons. What might this further idea be? Here's another thought. There is a special pleasure in doing things with other people when one has a shared sense of the meaning of these activities for all of us. This is not only pleasant, we might say, but it's a pleasure worth seeking, at least in many cases. Moreover, In some cases, the shared sense of meaning of our joint activity involves the idea that these shared activities have been and will continue to be repeated over time. Part of the significance and the value lies in this repetition and in the intention to repeat as an expression of enduring connection among the varying participants over time. Seeing the existence of the practice as giving one no reason to continue it is incompatible with sharing in this good, incompatible with being related to the other participants in the way that the good requires. This doesn't mean that one necessarily has reason to continue the practice. That depends on whether one has reason to continue in the relation it involves. Some shared activities are bad, even if the participants enjoy and are bonded by them. This this fits with and accommodates the thought I mentioned at the outset that not all traditions give reasons while still rescuing, it seems, uh, some idea that traditions themselves can do so in the right circumstances. I've gone through these steps to illustrate the way in which I've said that we should assess reason claims. It It also illustrates one point that I made earlier about strength. How strong is the reason to continue a practice understood in the way I've just proposed? This is determined at two levels. The first has to do with the understanding of the parties. In order to have the significance they attribute to the practice, what considerations does the reason to continue the practice have to override? If it can be overridden by the slightest inconvenience, then it doesn't seem very meaningful. Or, to put the point in reverse... It may be that if I take my reason to continue the practice, to be so slight as to be overridden by the slightest convenience, inconvenience, then I can't be seen as a member of the group, sharing in its good in any meaningful sense. A meaningful group is likely to involve more serious commitment. So the first answer to the question of strength is internal to the practice in question. But this answer to the question of strength is dependent on the assumption that one has reason to be a member of the group to begin with. Groups can involve practices that are tyrannical in their demands, in which case one may have good reason not to consider oneself a member. The same point can be put in terms of optionality. Is the reason one has to continue a practice an optional one, something there's reason to do, but just one reason among others? One might go to a film instead. Sharing in the good of participating in the practice is likely to preclude seeing the reason to continue as optional in this way. But the further question is whether seeing oneself as such a member is itself optional. I believe that with respect to almost all groups smaller than the moral community itself, the answer is yes. Being in a position to be part of a group of the kind I've described because of the particular social circumstances in which one is born or lived or found oneself uh, is, it provides, was, provides us with the opportunity to have a certain good. But it's one good among many and reasons for pursuing it, though good reasons, are generally optional in the sense I described. Groups that take the opposite view, I'm suggesting, can be tyrannical. What I've said seems right to me, although I'm not certain about it, uh, but I imagine it's controversial. Indeed, I said it because I thought it was controversial, at least I hope some of it's controversial, because I've said it with two purposes in mind. The first is to illustrate the way in which, on my account, we do and should go about answering questions about reasons. The second is to raise a question about this method, namely, whether it can deliver conclusions that have the significance that claims about reasons need to have. And it may seem that it cannot. What I've described is just a way of determining how things seem to me as far as reasons are concerned. But what is that to anyone else? If others disagree, what use are my conclusions if all they reflect is my own careful thinking, however careful it may be? Things would be different, one might say, if my conclusions were grounded in something that the others also accept, or must accept. But I've argued that this isn't so, so isn't my account of reasons rather solipsistic? So suppose someone disagrees with me about whether and how the traditions of a society provide the members of that society with reasons to continue them, or disagrees with me about whether the good of membership uh, provides reasons that are optional. Or suppose they disagree with me about the strength of those reasons, about when a group becomes tyrannical in the sense that it's a strong reason not to be a member. How does it matter that my view about this is, as we might say, correct? That is, that it might survive reflection of the kind I've described. First, as I said in describing the method of reflective equilibrium, the fact that someone else has reached a conclusion different from mine can be something can be something that I should take account in assessing my own view. I need to consider whether this person may have thought of alternatives, that is, ways, for example, ways in which a tradition might be significant, that I overlooked in my own thinking. The fact that she reached a different conclusion may indicate myopia on my part. But suppose I've taken this into account, and she has done likewise, but that the disagreement persists. Does this disagreement undermine the significance of my conclusion? Should it? The question is its significance for what? The first possibility is that it might undermine the significance of my conclusion as grounds for my own decision about what I should do, whether I should conform to the practice or not. I don't see how the fact of disagreement could have this effect except in the way I just mentioned, by calling my attention to some possible mistake in my reasoning. If after reflection it still seems to me that I have reasoned to continue or not continue the tradition that I'm not making a mistake and thinking, for example, that it's optional or not optional, that settles the matter for me. What more could be required to give my conclusion significance as a guide to my own action? The second possibility is that the fact of disagreement might undermine, undermine my conclusion as a basis for deciding what this other person has reason to do. Why should my conclusion be authoritative for her? But what I have reason to do in circumstances C and what she has reason to do in those same circumstances are not independent questions. An answer to one of these questions is at the very same time an answer to the other. The two of us have different reasons only if our circumstances differ in some relevant respect. In this case, that means only if my belief that I have a reason is a condition of my having that reason. If it does not, if if the reason does not depend on my belief, then unless the fact that she disagrees with my conclusion is evidence for modifying that conclusion, her belief can't make a difference to what either of us has reason to do either. Although her belief might, by definition, make a difference to the answer that she gives to that question. Third, moving into the area of morality. Does the fact that she disagrees with me make a difference to her moral claims about what it is permissible for her to do? or to my moral claims about that. In my view, the answer to this moral question depends upon what reasons a person in her situation would have for objecting to a principle that would forbid what she proposes to do. Suppose, for example, that she objects to a principle that would forbid certain conduct by claiming that that conduct is required by the traditions of her society and she therefore has good reason to want to be able to engage in it. So a principle that barred her from doing so could be rejected as incompatible with the tradition. and with her good reasons for wanting to uphold it. Suppose I believe, on the other hand, based upon my analysis of such reasons that I just went through, that these reasons aren't strong enough to support this claim. They don't make it reasonable to reject the principle in question. Traditions may provide some reason. They don't provide a reason of sufficient strength. The moral question of right and wrong turns on the reasonableness of her proposed rejection. That is to say, on the strength of the relevant reasons. I can't answer this question except by forming a judgment about it, about this strength, question of strength. And having arrived at a judgment about relative strength, I have no further decision to make about how to answer the question of right and wrong. So the fact of disagreement is again irrelevant, and the only kind of authority that that a judgment of this sort needs to have is simply that of being a correct assessment of the relevant reasons. I can't upset that without deciding that that the assessment was not correct. This result may be made clearer by making explicit the possibility that third parties may be involved. The reason why it isn't reasonable to reject a principle for the reason given, the value of continuing tradition, is that the cost of doing so to other people who, who would be affected by the action is too high. The agent in question and these third parties who would be affected by, the, by, the, by her non-compliance may disagree about this because they disagree, let's say, about the value of continuing the tradition. One, she thinks that that value is great enough to justify rejecting the principle, even though her, her following that course will impose this cost on them. They think tradition isn't sufficiently important to reject a principle uh, that would, the, whose violation would have that cost. To form an opinion about the permissibility of the conduct in question, one must take a position on this disagreement. Things may seem to be different if what is in question is not the permissibility of what some person does, but the permissibility of my interfering with what she does. Why should my conclusion that what she takes to be a reason to engage in her conduct is not really a good enough reason license me to interfere with what she does? The answer is that it probably does not license me. Even if she has no good reason to engage in this conduct, which doesn't I'm assuming, harm in this case't I'm assuming harm anyone else, she does have good reason to want to live by her own lights, which gives her reason to reject principles that would permit others to interfere when no one else is harmed. The case is thus different from the one I previously discussed about whether it's right or wrong for her to do something, but not different in a fundamental way because the impermissibility of of interference depends upon the conclusion I just stated about the reasons for wanting not to be interfered with as compared to the costs on, on others of not interfering. That is to say, it depends on the correctness of this claim about reasons, not on whether people agree about it. Questions about what we have reason to do are questions we are capable of thinking about in the ways I've described. If one has thought carefully about such a question in this way and sees no objection to it, then there's nothing further one can do to decide whether it is correct. But even if this is all we can do, it would be complacent to infer from this that it is therefore necessarily enough. As I've stressed, it's not enough to ensure that the conclusion we've reached is correct to say that we've thought all we could about it and can't see how it could fail to be. We might have made a mistake in our reasoning, But the question whether you've done this is just another first-order normative question, calling for and answerable by more reasoning of the very same kind. The charge of, of complacency that I'm imagining claims to go farther. It is that this kind of reasoning might be inadequate because it fails to be in touch at any point with the normative facts, fails to be sensitive to or responsive to them. The idea is that there might be facts about which things are reasons for action, that we need to be in contact with, or sensitive to, in some way other than through the process I've described, in order for our conclusions about reasons to be sound. But I don't see how there could be facts of this distant kind that would still be normatively relevant. Facts about reasons are the sort of thing we can think about and assess through a process of the sort I've described. There's no way of being in touch with such facts except through this very process. This is not to justify complacently thinking that we have gotten it right in regard to every judgment we make about reasons. But the thought that we might not have gotten it right is a thought internal to this reflective process. And the grounds for concern about whether whether we've done so are also internal to it. They lie in the weakness and indeterminacy of the form of reasoning that it involves. Given the weakness and uncertainty of these forms of reasoning, we very often have reason to be uncertain about whether we've gotten it correct. Christine Korsgaard has written that on a substantive realist account of reasons, we have nothing more to go on than our confidence that, after thinking about what reasons we have, we have gotten it right. She intends this idea that we've got nothing to go on but our confidence as a criticism of a view of the kind I'm defending. I believe that what she says here about confidence is entirely correct. We do have nothing to rely on except our confidence that we've gotten it right. Sometimes that confidence is justified, often it's not. But that's life. There's nothing more that we could have. To be realistic about reasons, we must accept this fact. Thank you.